Hey, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 12. We are in a series called The Storyteller, and it's lessons at the feet of Jesus. So we're going through some of the parables or the stories that Jesus told and asking the question, what is it that he wants us, what's the truth that he wants us to uncover from these stories? So we're going to be in the book of Luke chapter 12. If you are new to scripture, the uh, book of Luke is about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. It's in what we call the New Testament. It's the beginning. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or what we call the Gospels, or the, the good news of Jesus. And uh, so the book of Luke is where we are there. And if, as always, if you want to, uh, you don't have a Bible and you want to use one, we have them in the tables in the back. And if you don't have one, that is our gift to you. Please feel free to take that. Uh, so we'll be there in just a moment. Before we get into the story for today, I was thinking about the passage and 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 what it's about, and I was reminded of a, of a movie that came out in the early 70s, before I was born, by the way, and uh, when this movie came out, um, it became very popular in the Christian circles, and it, it was a movie that, I guess I, I read today, or yesterday, that um, 300 million people or so have seen this movie, maybe even more, but it's called A Thief in the Night, and, and so maybe some of you um, are familiar with it, you've seen it, some of you maybe you were scared into heaven by watching it, and, and so it, it was one of those for you that was maybe a part of your faith journey. Uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was kind of another version of that called Left Behind. It became a very, very popular book series and, and became a blockbuster um, movie that the Oscar award-winning performance of Kurt Cameron, um, when, they, when it came out, did he get an Oscar for it? I don't remember. Um, but, uh, but, but so both of those stories are kind of about what happens at the end of all things. And, and so what is life like then? And it's something that's very fascinating to people to know what happens at the end. What happens if Jesus comes back? What happens when the world gets to the end of it? And it's not even just popular in the Christian world, by the way. Christians don't have a corner on this market because in just... People in general, we like to fantasize and think about destruction and annihilation and the end of things, right? Just think about how popular zombie things have been in the last 10 years, right? We all, and even my kids, we always have this conversation, well, if on the zombie apocalypse, this is what I'm going to do. You know, as if it's a real thing, a conversation we have, which I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do in case you get the same idea. So, um, but, you know, we've got to preserve our family, um, but so people like the zombie movies, they like the end of the world movies. In fact, I remember one of my sons went through a season where he wanted to see every destructive movie there was. And any uh, end of the world destruction movie junkies out there, like you just want to see the big tidal wave that destroys New York City or, you know, the earthquake that, that's like a 10.0 and things like that. People love to look at and to think about what happens when it all ends. And so Jesus today in this parable we're looking at is actually going to talk about this idea of what would happen when God, when the, the culmination of this, the narrative in Scripture, when God returns and kind of puts an end to the world as we know it, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. What is the posture of his people as we anticipate or wait for that day? Now, I just need to say today, this is not the theology or the, all the description about what that will look like, when it will look like, and all of that. Um, there's plenty of books out there that tell you when the end will come and how it's going to happen. And I can tell you they're all wrong. So um, the only thing we have is scripture and then our imagination. And, and, and so there's a lot of people who guess. And if anyone tells you they know when the end of the world is coming, you can smile and nod at them and say, oh, I didn't know that you were God. Okay, so um, 
So, but today we're not going to talk about that theology of when or how, but what is the posture of God's people to be prepared for him? And so we're going to look at that in just a moment. So pray with me as we get started. God, we thank you so much for today. And we thank you again that you do not leave us in a place where we're in a world that's filled with this, uh, despair. You don't leave us as people who have no hope. But God, that you, because of who you are, give us hope. And Lord, even when we look and think about the end of all things, perhaps it's the end of the world or just the end of our lives. Lord, that there's hope. That there is a Savior who loves us, who has a plan, and who's made a way. And so God, would you teach us today and encourage our hearts as we follow you. In your name, amen. So Luke chapter 12 is where we are, and we're going to pick it up in verse 35. I want to read the parable to you, and it's just a few verses long, and then we'll go back and provide some context. So it begins and says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves who whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table. He will come and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So that is what we're going to look at here today, this little parable. And it talks about, again, this idea of even where the movie Thief in the Night or Left Behind gets some of their theology from is at an hour when you do not expect that God will come. But what are the things we need to understand before we get into this? There's a few key elements to this parable. First one is this wedding feast. We want to understand the wedding feast. In a wedding feast, uh, in the Jewish culture, first century especially, that the, a part of their celebration is a, a feast that would go on up to seven days. In fact, a, traditionally it would go for seven days. So um, uh, parents with daughters, could you imagine? You have to fund seven days worth of celebration. Um, and, and so that would be what that was like. And every night, um, it would be a long, long, long celebration that could go all through the night. And because it was a seven-day long thing, there's accommodations that were made for people if they had to travel to get there. And so it was a week-long party. Now, by the way... Another thing about that is the wedding happened at the end of the engagement, and the, the length of the engagement was the length of time that it took for the father of the, of the groom to build an addition on his house so that his son and daughter-in-law could move in. So when it, they got engaged, he'd go home and say, hey dad, I'm, I've got engaged, we're going to get married, and they would build an addition, in most cases, to the house, and when that was done, then he would go find his bride and say, okay, it's time now. So whenever you have imagery and scripture about that, that's the picture that's being paid or made. In fact, Jesus says, I go away to prepare a place for you and I will come back again. That's that same imagery of the wedding of the father in heaven is preparing a place for you. And when it's ready, we come back at an hour when the father says is the imagery what that means. Not that God's up there building a house for you right now, but when he says it's time, it's time. So that's the imagery. So there's this wedding feast that's going on. Now, the other thing about wedding feasts in the Jewish context and culture is that they were often, um, in fact, by the time of first century, it was used as imagery for the Messiah or, the, um, or salvation or God's kingdom coming to earth. 
And it was a picture of God's eternal kingdom. So the wedding feast was used as a reminder that, oh, there is a celebration and and salvation was a celebration in heaven and the imagery was a a wedding feast. Isaiah chapter 25 speaks about that. And Jesus actually uses uh, that imagery in his other parables about the kingdom of God. So you have the wedding feast. And, And there was, so if it went on for seven days, the other characters here that are in the story are the servants, now, in a wealthy household, and this is likely someone who's a wealthy household, there was different tiers uh, of, of people who had significance in the house. Of course, the, the owner, the master who we're talking about here is the highest. And then his family members, his, his wife and his kids would be the next level down. He would often have a steward, or you could think of it as someone who's in charge of his possessions, um, maybe like the head butler or something like that. Um, that person would be there. But all the way down on the very bottom rung are the people mentioned here of his servants or his slaves. Now, in the first century in the Greco-Roman culture, for the most part, slaves did not count even as people. And it was actually Jesus and the writings of Paul that started to be the first abolitionists who were talking about, no, in Christ, that slaves are free and they're equal uh, with you and that there's, they can be your brothers and sisters in Christ. But at this, when Jesus is telling this story, he's talking about the servants who are the lowest level in someone's household. And then, of course, as, as I mentioned, we have the master, who's probably a, a wealthy landowner. Um, we're not sure how this master is connected to this wedding in this parable. It could have been his own son's wedding. It could have been a family member. It could have been just like someone in their community. And we also don't know how far he had to travel to this wedding. But the way it's worded, either he is staying in the same town or already lives in the same town, but somehow has his own private quarters, probably near the wedding, uh, because it would be very unlikely for anyone to travel in the middle of the night, long distances um, in the ancient world. It it would not happen very often. So it's probably in the same village, same town, or even the same complex. But that's what's going on here. So now let's go back into the story and talk about, verse by verse, the deeper meaning behind this. So it starts off in verse 35. It says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. So the very first picture here is being dressed in readiness. Now, servants, or all people in first century, often wore these robes that were kind of free-flowing robes that went all the way uh, down to the floor often. Being dressed in readiness, or sometimes I'll say to gird your loins, was essentially to put a rope or a belt around that robe. You would lift the robe up a little bit so that you had some more of your legs showing so that you could move around more often. And then you would put the belt around, and now that is the posture of a servant. So it says being dressed in readiness means you have the belt on and you are ready to serve. When the belt is off, you can't serve as easily. You can't move around. And so being dressed in readiness means you have the posture of a servant. You already are in that mindset. Keeping your lamps lit is not just having the lamp lit so the master will come home, but it's also having a backup supply of oil. It's saying, hey, you're ready for any situation in any circumstance. If the master takes too long to get there, or a second and third watch of the night, which essentially is between midnight and 6 a.m., so if it's a really late party, you're still ready, and the lamp's still lit, and you have extra oil ready. So there's this, this picture of servants who have thought of everything, and they are, they're, they're there, and they're not going to be caught off guard. And it says now, verse 36, Be like these men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding. So in the middle of the night, be prepared, be ready. 
Does anyone ever have those, those middle of the night, you know, when you get up and you're not really quite sure, was I sleepwalking or what's going on? It takes you a while to get the cobwebs out. Maybe it's like a noise outside, a dog barking, or you get up and your kids have left like a Lego toy in the middle of the floor, and you step right in the middle of it, which I think is, you know, like God's punishment to mankind. If you've ever, if you've never done that, I recommend go home, put a Lego on the floor, and step right in the middle of it. Um, but in the middle of the night, it can be very disorienting. And so this is a picture of people who are not disoriented. They're not groggy. They're ready. I was thinking of when I used to be a youth pastor many years ago. I used to take my youth group. At the very end of the summer, we went and we camped at Silver Strand Beach down in San Diego. Uh, on, on between the bay and the ocean. And there's that one strand that's on Coronado, just south of uh, where the Navy SEALs do their training. And we camp on the, the sand si- or the bay side of it. We had a bunch of tents there. And I remember one time we were there and we had, it was the middle of the night and we had about 100 high schoolers camping in tents on the beach, which nothing could ever go wrong with that kind of scenario. But so we were in there and, and things there. I'm in my tent and, and it's the middle of the night and then out of nowhere, I hear a bunch of yelling. And then I hear some cussing, and they're mad, and I'm just thinking, are you kidding me? And, and so I jumped out of my tent, and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And then I jumped back in my tent, put my clothes on, and then got back out <laughs> and, and ran towards the noise and just said, like, what's going on? Stop it. And, and then I kind of and I'm groggy, and I look, and I see, and coming out of the water, and I'm like, why are some of my high schoolers in the water? Why are they fighting? Why are they cussing? And coming out of the water, there's a group of Navy SEALs carrying their raft, and their leader, their master, is like yelling at them, and he's telling you them things that I can't tell you right now, and calling them names that were very encouraging and uplifting. <laughs> basically telling them, keep moving, get going, you, whatever they were. And, and so when I ran over, and I didn't know who they were at first, I'm like, hey, what's going on? And they get out of the water, and they walk past me, and they just kind of looked at me, and this, their master, their sergeant or whoever looks at me, and I'm just like, carry on, you're good, <laughs> you know. But sometimes in the middle of the night, you know, it takes a moment to realize what's going on. The picture here in this story is these, these servants are ready. They're prepared. They're not groggy. They're not questioning what's happening. They're alert and prepared. So in verse 36, it says, Be like these, who are waiting for their master to return, for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so they may immediately open the door, and when he comes and knocks. Now, there's a couple things here that in this sentence to help us understand it more. The first one is the word waiting. The word waiting here can be translated a couple of ways um, or understood a couple of ways. In this one, the waiting, there, there's different types of waiting. So if we go down to the beach and we go surfing, there's the waiting that says, well, the waves aren't very good, so I'm going to hang out in the parking lot, and I'm going to look out there, and I'm going to wait for it to get better. I'm going to wait for the tide to change or wait to see if it gets better. If you ever go down to pipes, it's like w- w- one of the places where I like to surf, there's always a group of guys sitting up on the bluff, waiting, right? They're just waiting for it to be better or something. I think they're avoiding going home, but let's, for the illustration, they're waiting for the waves to get better. Now, there's that type of waiting, but then there's the waiting that says, well, it doesn't look great, but I'm going to paddle out, and I'm going to wait for a good wave, and the second one is a waiting that is actually expecting. It's a waiting that's not sitting around passive, but it's an active type of waiting. That's a translation here that's used. Is this active waiting that's saying we are expecting something to happen. In fact, in some translations, they actually use expecting their master to come home. 
So that's the first word. Now the second one, and this one changes the meaning, meaning a little bit more, is when he returns. Returns. Now in the translations that are closest to the, the original language, to Aramaic, the ones that are translated in, into Syriac and the original language, closest to what Jesus was speaking, they translate this as withdraws, when he departs from or withdraws from the wedding, not returns from the wedding. Now, you might say, well, what's the big deal about that? What's the difference? The difference is this. The returns, we could just read it as, oh, the wedding was over, and he came. But in the original language, and the Greek actually allows for you, the, Luke writes in Greek, allows it to be withdraws or returns, but the, the closest languages say he withdrawed, he departed, he slipped out of the wedding. And so the picture that's here is that they're expectant, they're wondering when, they're ready for their master to come home, and he says they're ready even if he slips out early, even if he departs and withdraws from the celebration, which is significant. I want to show you why in just a moment. So that when he comes, they immediately open the door when he knocks. Now, here's another thing. If you're the master of the house, why do you have to come and knock? Or why do you knock at all in the ancient Near East? Often, what we, if you are friendly, you would call out. You would come to the door. You might knock, but you'd say, like, hey, it's me, your master. I'm here. And you'd call through the house so that everyone would be alerted to your presence and know you're there. But here, he doesn't call out. He just knocks. And immediately they open. So, again, the picture is they're expectant. They're waiting for something to happen. And immediately, when he just knocks, they're there. Master, you're here. We were expecting you. Now, a couple questions that come up here. The first one is this. What does it mean as Christians to be ready for Jesus to come? What does it mean to be expectant? Some of us, you know, when I worked in youth ministry for many years, I would have this question often that would come up, say like, well, what if Jesus comes back, Ryan, and like the last thing I did was sinful, what would happen then? Or the question that I was asked often was, what if I got in a car accident and my very last words out of my mouth were less than Christian and, 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 and then I died but I never confessed that sin to the Lord? What happens then? And I would often be asked this question. To which the answer to that is, is, is really, if we die with unconfessed sins, is it about your works or Christ's work that forgive you? It's about the work of Christ on the cross that forgives you, not your ability to remember everything you ever did wrong. So you're okay there. The other one is this. What if God comes back and like finds me in a casino? Then what? What, what if he catches me? In fact, I talked to someone this week who said that growing up, they weren't allowed to go to uh, movies because they didn't want to be in the movies in case Jesus would return. That was literally the description from their grandmother. Said so because if you, how do you think it would be if Jesus came back and you were in the movies? I mean, come on. <laughs> and it's not even a Christian movie. I mean, come on. It was Passion of the Christ, and that's rated R. You're really in trouble. So, so, but we we kind of have that. We laugh, right? But actually, that's a very common question. What does it mean to be ready? What if when Jesus comes back, I wasn't all the way ready? What if I wasn't serving him? What if I was, you know, doing something sinful? And he, is that being expectant? Is that being ready? Well, the picture here, again, what the first thing we need to do is we need to erase that from our minds. Because, again, that's the transactional nature that we're tended to, we, we drift towards that. 
It's very easy to think that God works with us in, in, a, in a balance. And as long as enough good outweighs the bad, that somehow, okay, whew, we skated in. But we need to remember, first and foremost, that's about Christ and about Jesus and what He has done. So if we are forgiven, if we are saved, if we've received the forgiveness that He offers to you freely, you can erase those questions. So the other question then, then okay, so what is it to be expectant? And we're going to get to that in just a minute, but let me paint the rest of the picture of this. I just wanted to erase one myth there before we get there. So verse 36, we saw that, that they come back. He departs. They're ready for him. Verse 37, he says, Blessed are those slaves who the master will find alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and come up and wait on them. Do you notice the change here? Something happens in this, and I've got to confess, I've read this many times and kept glancing over, just passing over what happens. Because what Jesus does here is he says something that was extremely shocking and controversial. He actually says something in the first century that people would have said, whoa, whoa, time out. This makes no sense. He says, blessed are those who serve, which by the way, this word blessed isn't blessed are those if you serve. This blessed is the same that's used in a section we call the Beatitudes, um, where it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a condition of who they are. They are blessed. They're not going to be blessed if they do that. There's a difference. Uh, in, In Hebrew, the translation is, happy is the person who is this way. Not, you will be blessed if you are this way. It is the condition of who they are that makes them a servant. Does that make sense? It's, it's the opposite of you are blessed because you're a servant. It says, no, you, because you are blessed by your master, you serve. That's the language here. But so blessed are those who have this posture, who are that type of servant, who are, the, who are alert. That's who they are. But then look what happens, the great reversal. It says the master girds his loins. The master puts on his belt. The master serves them and tells them to recline at the table. Now, there's a couple of very shocking things here in, to their culture. One, a master would never serve the slaves. Would never. That doesn't make any sense. Why would the master do this? But in this picture, he knocks on the door. They open it. And he says, hey, guys, I'm back. So glad you're still awake. I've got something for you. You're not going to believe what's going on as they watch him tie his belt around his robe and they think, what are you doing? He says, come here. Let's go to the dining room. I want you to recline. This would be shocking too because why should they recline? They're not even allowed to sit at the same table that the family got to sit at. But Jesus, or sorry, the master in the story says, sit at this table. And then he says, recline. Recline is a posture of a free person. Servants never got to recline. That meant that you were not a slave. So the master shows up, puts on the belt, and says, I've got something for you. Recline, and the master serves them. What does the master serve? How does the master have something to serve? Where's this food from? You see, because it makes sense that in the middle of the night, he'd say like, hey guys, Maybe at best, he could say, like, you know what? I'm kind of hungry. The food at the wedding was terrible. Let's go ahead, and can you, let's, you guys want to mix up some food, and we'll eat it together. That would, you'd say, like, that's shocking, but okay. But no, no, no. He says, come here. I've got something for you. Sit down. Recline. No, relax. 
I want to, I have something for you. And he feeds them. What does he feed them? What does he serve them? Now, if we really look to original context, it's not in here, but it makes sense. That could it be that when he slipped out, he departed the wedding early, that he was at the celebration and he said, you know what? I'm thinking of my servants right now. I'm thinking of those who are so faithful to me. I'm thinking of those who love me. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take some of this food and go serve them. Now, maybe it was his feast he was throwing. We don't know. Maybe he snuck it out. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe he just said, I'm taking this. But he shows up at their door and immediately tells them to sit down and he can serve them something to eat. And the imagery that's going on that Jesus is painting is an imagery that hopefully some of you are picking up on. And if you aren't, this is one of the most profound truths in Scripture. Is if in the Jewish context, the wedding feast is a picture of heaven, and if it's all about a celebration of the Messiah, then isn't it interesting that this master or this celebration in heaven, you have someone who steps out of the party that he belongs in. He becomes a servant. And he causes those who don't deserve it to recline. And he gives them a piece of the celebration. This is a picture of the good news of Jesus. This is a picture of the master stepping out of heaven and becoming a servant. We call that the incarnation. It's God who steps out and becomes the servant of us. And he causes us to recline and to be invited in and to get a taste, to get a piece of the celebration of the wedding feast. And it's this idea that Jesus is saying like, look, those who you are my disciples, look what's actually happening is the servant or the master is inviting you to the party. You are welcome in. You are part of this. It's a picture of what Christ was about to do on the cross. So it has a now and a yet to come language. It's also a picture of eternity. Of now you have been made worthy to be invited to be a part of the feast. That the servants weren't allowed to be a part of. But because of the master and his goodness, they were invited in. He withdrew from the party early. Brought a taste for them. And serve them. Serve them. And again, the way they act, the servants acted here, was expression of who they were, not an expression of what they were trying to earn. Notice in here, the master already had a plan. He already knew who his faithful disciples were. And he came to bless them. And these, the first story, are all of those who are disciples of Jesus. In fact, Jesus, at the end of this, says this. Or Peter asks in verse 41, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? In other words, hey, Jesus, are we, are we the ones? Is, it just, is this just for us? We, you want us, if we're faithful disciples to you, you're going to serve us? Is that, I mean, or is this for everybody? Because it's pretty cool if it's just for us. I'm, I'm okay with that. And we're not going to get into it, but then Jesus doesn't answer him. He just tells him another parable that basically is about, it's about leaders. And he says, actually, those who lead, and it was probably a 
call on the nation of Israel, the priesthood, but also to the disciples. He said, if I give you more responsibility to lead my church and my people, you're going to be held to a higher account than everyone else. So, yes, the first one is for all my disciples. So what's our response is the question. We have in the story of this picture of an incredibly merciful and compassionate master who thinks of his servants, who wants to serve them, a picture of Jesus. So how do we respond? How do we know that we are those disciples? If it's not about earning, it's about what Christ has done, does that mean there's just nothing we do? No, well, let's go, first of all, first thing we do for response is this. Live in faithfulness as his disciples. Let's live our lives in faithfulness as his disciples. What does that mean? It means where God has placed you with the knowledge you have and where you are to be faithful to what you believe or, or to be faithful to what you know and what God, where God has you. See, and let me explain something. Jesus here doesn't wake anyone up in the story. Notice the master doesn't show up and say, hey, are there any servants here who I forgot? Oh yeah, there's some, they're still sleeping in the back. Let me go get them. So there is some, obviously he's talking about those that because of what Christ, the master has done for them, that they're happy to serve. So there is, there is this picture of, okay, they're living in faithfulness. They're doing what they are asked to do as servants. So let's live as faithfulness and disciples. But here's a few things that I want us to be careful of. Don't let someone else's calling define your calling. What do I mean by that? Don't think that if there's a missionary in the jungle somewhere, that they're expectant and they're ready, but because you are a missionary to Encinitas, that that doesn't count as much as theirs. Now, God may be calling them to the, to the jungle, and that's where he wants them, but God might need you right here in Encinitas. And so what we don't want to do is to start comparing your own faithfulness and your walk with Christ with someone else's. Because either it makes us prideful, as if, well, at least I'm closer to the door than my friends. If Jesus comes back, like, I might be groggy, but at least I'm awake with the lamp lit. But my friends are asleep. Because I'm serving God over here, and they're not. So let's not compare your faithfulness to someone else's. Don't compare your calling to someone else's. Be faithful where God has you, and be faithful to where, where he has led you. Live in faithfulness as disciples. Here's the other thing, is don't look at how other people live out their faith and say, I need that. Now, we can learn from others. We can grow. But there's been a lot of Christian fads throughout the ages that become the in thing, the in way to follow Jesus. Even think of the days in the early 70s, there was this Jesus people movement. And it was fantastic for the church. All of a sudden, you could show up at church with no shoes on and long hair, and you could be saved. It was great. Some of you came out of that Calvary Chapel movement, and that's when it started, when all of a sudden, people from the beach also could be Christians. It was great. Yes. <laughs> and it was revolutionary. But what could happen, and it did in some case happen, is there's division. Some people say, well, we, we are more respectful. And then on the other side, we'll say, like, well, we're real passionate about Jesus. We're not passionate about tradition. And there was division. Why? Because they were comparing the fads. They were comparing how you lived it out. Even lately, the last 10, 15 years, the Christian fad is social justice and service. We at Seacoast care very much about social justice. We want to be involved in causes. But 
It's very easy to look at some, and there's books written about people who sold everything they have, and they live in the inner city, and they serve the poor. And if you're not doing that, you're not really ready for Jesus to come back. Now, I would say for them, if that's God's where he's leading you and calling you, fantastic. That's great. But if God's calling you to be faithful as a school teacher in San Diego, that's great. If God's calling you to be faithful as an accountant every day where you go to work, then that is where he has you. And we want to be people who are not centered or focused on the technique, but we're saying, God, we want to live faithfully as your servants where you have us, how you shaped us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says that we want to be people who are in ever-increasing glory are being transformed into the image and likeness of God. We don't want to stay where we are. We want to grow in his image and likeness, but it's going to be at different paces. It's going to look differently. So being ready, I want to warn us, do not compare to make yourself feel worse or compare and make yourself feel better. Let's be faithful. And the second part of this is how can we be ready is this. Celebrate the master, or in this story, Jesus. Make Jesus the center of this. Notice the motivation of the servants in this story. We actually don't know much about their motivation, but something in them made them expectant. Something in them made them happy to be ready. Blessed are they who this is their posture, because they were joyfully serving their master. I doubt they said, isn't this great we get to stay up all night and keep our lamps lit? That's so great. If they focus on the task, if they focus on the actions, they would burn out. But they said, no, 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 our master is worth our love. And when the master showed up, he, he demonstrated that he was thinking of them. So for us to be ready, let's celebrate Jesus. Let's keep our focus on him. Let's make our life like, Jesus, we just, we want to love you, we want to know you more. We want you to fill us and be a part of who we are. That's where our focus is. And how that plays out and, and how it, you know, 20 years from now, your life will look different than it did when you first met Jesus. That's the way it goes. We grow. But it's centered on who Christ is, not on the method and the technique. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way up here as we come near the end and there's a couple things here in this story for us as, as we're going to end and we're actually going to celebrate what we call communion here, which I think is a great way to be reminded of that we are invited to the table with God, that we're invited to the celebration about Jesus. And it's a reminder that this story really is about the incarnation that God came down to serve us, to provide a way for salvation. And then it's a story of being invited in, of atonement, we call that. Being forgiven of your sins and given new life. In just a moment, we're going to go to the tables and celebrate communion. And we take bread, and the bread represents the body of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. That he, the life that he lived for you. The, the master becoming the servant. And then we'll take the cup, the juice, which represents the blood of Christ, which is the promise, the covenant in his blood. He shed his blood so that we could receive the forgiveness that only a perfect God could give. And the cup is a, a, is a covenant. It's a promise. It's saying that what I have done is enough. But as we end, let's remember and let's have it centered and focused on Christ. And when we think of who he is and what he's done, that frees us to joyfully and faithfully serve.
And let me just end with one other just statement here. Some of you might think, you know, Ryan, Jesus's people have been waiting for Jesus to come back for 2,000 years now. Um, I don't think it's going to happen, so why are we really worried about it? And I was reminded in 2 Peter chapter 3, this was written not long after Jesus lived and existed, maybe a couple decades, and people were saying, hey, I thought Jesus was coming back. It's been like 20 years. And Peter writes, and he says, don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. In other words, he's outside of time. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, as we end here, you might think, I don't know, is Jesus ever coming back? Do I really have to think about it? Is he taking too long? Peter reminds us, he is patient with you and with me, because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's what we celebrate. That's the master that we get to faithfully serve because of his great love for you and for me. So let's pray and then take communion together. Lord God, we thank you again for today. I thank you for the reminder that Lord, you are the, the master that stepped out to serve, that, Lord, you are the one with, out of your goodness and mercy have given it all. And, Lord, we couldn't do anything to deserve that kind of treatment from you, but, Lord, we can certainly respond to your great love. And so we need your power, we need your strength, we need your life in us. Lord, as we want to make our lives about you, and Lord, we want to be faithful followers of you who are transformed by your goodness and your love. And so, Lord, even now as we remember your death and resurrection, Lord, let that be a reminder of how good you have been and how good you are and how good you will be to us. Lord, we thank you and we give you this time.